Welcome to Moody's Talks KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. This is Moody's Talks KYC Decoded, and this is part two of our sanctions mini-series. I'm joined today by Andreas Hobelin, who I came across on LinkedIn when he was posting some incredibly interesting networks looking at the current sanctions that are being imposed on Russian oligarchs and entities. Now, Andreas is the head of AML and financial crime prevention at ZTL Payment Solutions, so a real practitioner. Andreas, why don't you provide a quick intro to yourself and some of your background and how you got into this space? Yes, I've actually been working with anti-financial crime and sanctions prevention for over over 10 years, almost 14 years. I started working with compliance screening systems and sanctions data. uh, And I've been working on both uh, sides of the table, selling the systems and and, uh, being a consultant on the inside, uh, helping clients implementing screening systems uh, and and utilizing on, on sanctions data as well as being uh, an AML expert within a financial institution, working with the implementation and development and managing sanction screening systems from more of an operational perspective. Coming at this from multiple angles then. Yes, yeah, and I think that's also necessary when you're targeting this kind of area, both the AML area, financial crime area, as well as sanctions. And the reason I reached out, Andreas, uh, to you when I, when I saw those analyses that you were doing and, and publishing was we wanted to do this part two on ownership and control, which are two very important concepts in the in the sanctions arena and very much ties into a lot of what we're thinking about um, here at Moody's in terms of going beyond the lists. Uh, we, we don't feel that the focus purely on the lists is particularly helpful. I know when we spoke that you tend to agree. So in your own words, sort of what do you see as the problem with the lists? First of all, I think if, if you're looking at the larger bank, right, the banks, regardless if they are in the Nordics, Baltics or, or European or US, uh, there are still a lot of financial institutions out there that purely use the raw source sanctions data. Uh, and what, what do I mean with the raw source sanctions data? I mean the raw source sanctions data, which are not enriched by any comprehensive sanctions data vendor, right? Which is an issue because as people working with sanctions data, we know that the raw source sanctions data, it's not complete. It doesn't have a complete coverage, especially when it comes to to the ownership of, for example, if you have a sanctioned person or a sanctioned entity, you, you wouldn't get all the subsidiaries or all the investments beneath that sanctioned object. When I met people, especially in the Nordics, they are still utilizing um, on the raw source sanctions data, both on sanctioning their own customers as well as the payment screening, uh, sanction uh, screening, the sanction screenings of of counterparties, the recipients and senders, and that that that's a big issue because you're actually missing a lot of targets. And, and with that said, and on that point, I would say that talking about the com- comprehensive sanctions data vendors that are out there, they, they don't have full coverage either. And I don't think that, I don't know that all people working with sanctions in financial institutions, if they really know, knows this, because a lot of those vendors, they say, ah, you are, you are compliant with our systems and our data. You don't have to look anywhere else. Just use our data. The problem is that I've done a lot of benchmark the, the last couple of years. So I actually did a, a check or an analysis on, on three major 
Russian sanctioned entities to see if their subsidiaries in Cyprus, if all were profiled in this comprehensive sanctions data, vendors' data sets. And there were like 30, 40%, I think, of those subsidiaries only in Cyprus that they actually had profiled in their database, which was, this actually showed me that even although I, I, I need to rely and have put my trust in, in my sanctioned data provider, I know that they are not complete or they don't have complete coverage. And this is something that the, the industry needs to know, right? And I know that a lot of those bigger financial institutions that have a, have a big exposure to high-risk countries and, and may have a sanctioned risk exposure, they actually utilize two different sanctioned data vendors to 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 ensure and almost like an insurance to, to see that they're actually are hitting their target. Yeah. So in, in this case, there was less than 50% coverage um, on, on these examples. I won't presume to know the exact for everything, but on the, these examples. And you talked about it being sort of looking at the corporate structures. Was it just subsidiaries you were looking at, or were you also looking up the chain of, of these entities? I was actually looking, first of all, I was looking at the subsidiaries in, in Cyprus. And I just wanted to see if there were in, in this sanctioned data set, were the subsidiaries even profiled, right? But they, they, were not, they weren't not even profiled in the database. It was impossible to see if there were 50% or, or, or 20%, 25 or 100%. Okay. And is this a common way from, from your experience and, and the, the various roles you've had for sanctioned entities, like the, the three uh, Russian ones that you mentioned or, or, or you mentioned collectively? Is this how they'll normally try to continue their business? Is it through their subsidiary networks? Uh, yes, both that and they also do what they do on the subsidiaries. They actually change some part of the names. And if you have a poor sanction screening system, for example, say that you're only utilizing on Levenstein distance to match the name, it could be that you have, for example, in Norway, we have a, uh, a Norwegian company called, uh, I cannot say that, but, but we have a Norwegian <laughs> company, which is within its name, it, ha- it has a Russian sanctioned entity within its name but right if you screen again the full name which is several words in the name you you won't actually get a match because the levenstein distance is too poor in the matching so they cannot match the same entity or even that the norwegian entity has this russian uh sanctioned entity name within its not name so that norwegian company is actually not even matched within your domestic sanction screening uh or even um, if you screen cross-border as well, you, you won't get a hit on that company. Sure. And, and for those not uh, familiar with it, could you explain the Levenstein distance matching? Oh, no, I'm not an expert on that. But what I did, <laughs> so, so I'm not, yeah. So what I did to, to be an, try to be an expert on that, I actually took some examples, 10 companies, 10, 10 individuals, and I did searches on a database, which are using Leven, only Levenstein distance. And I, tried to do so I do the exact match the little bit looser and the really loose but mm. even with the real loose and I compare that to the sanctions uh, matching filtering that UFAC has within their own which I most likely think is quite basic as well but there I actually could see the differences but even with this Levenstein I wouldn't get a match but if I use the UFAC sanction screening a matching technology it was quite I actually got a match on that company which was quite interesting because I don't think that UFAG has a really, how do you say, intelligent uh, matching algorithm behind it. But yeah. 
Sure. So we've got two big two big issues that you've immediately identified with list just in the last couple of weeks. You've got the coverage of of subsidiaries and networks, and you've got the fact that you need to calibrate your matching and be aware of what it can and what it can't do as well. So that's really interesting. Andreas, you mentioned uh, the subsidiaries and looking at the networks there and needing to be able to go down the the corporate chain. I really wanted to talk to you about ownership and how as a compliance practitioner, you have to think about that when you're running your sanctions program. Could you maybe talk about ownership, how you look at it, and, and particularly the 50% rule, which normally comes up uh, often in discussions in terms of OFAC compliance? So when it comes to OFAC, OFAC specifies that entities are blocked if, if uh, one or more blocked persons own a total of 50% of the entity directly or indirectly. And, and any divestment transactions for such entities must take place outside of U.S. jurisdictions and, and must not involve any U.S. person, right? However, entities that have less than 50% ownership by blocked persons are not blocked according to UFAC. It is important then that to conduct due diligence to be certain that any alleged divestments actually happen and was not a, like a sham transaction, for example. What happens when the property of an entity blocked because of the 50% rule comes within the United States or comes within the control of a US person. In that case, the property is blocked until one of the kind of following events take place. Uh, UFAC allows the unblocking or UFAC takes the blocked person off the SDN list. But, but these are like the, what, what we need to follow, right? But when I work with this on a risk-based approach, I'm focusing on the sanctioned risk and i my experience is that a 50 percent rule that's not really the the biggest risk that i see the biggest risk are below 50 percent and and many of those sanctioned entities and individuals who are sanctioned they of course know knows this and they try to fall below the 50 percent rule so they won't be blocked by so Andreas, you mentioned that obviously people are changing their shareholdings. They're trying to get below these these sort of thresholds that have been set that they're aware of as are practitioners. When you're in that situation and, and you're looking to mitigate sanctions risk, what, what are some of the things you think about? Do you set a new number that is for you or, or is it more a case by case? A case by case. So my experience has been that although we have a legal team that, that are looking at the kind of the, the, the yes and no answer, the threshold 50%, that we who work in the first line, who, we, 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 try, we try to work risk-based, right? Which means that although the, what we have seen is that a lot of those sanctioned objects, they are 49% or 49.5% or, or if you're talking about EU, you have even less, right? But they are just below the threshold. So even if the legal requirements are uh, on the thresholds are not met, uh, we were risk-based with, with, and on a case-by-case basis, which means that we most likely would treat a corporate customer or a sanctioned uh, or a co- corporate customer that is sanctioned by 49%, for example, by a uh, UFAC designated person or entity. We would treat that as a real sanction risk exposure, and there would most likely be a discussion on how, if one would keep that customer regarding, of, are we willing to take that sanction risk exposure? Because we know most likely that threshold has been lowered just to be below that percentage so that the customer would 
be able to continue having an account with the bank, for example. Yeah, so you're sort of thinking letter of the law, spirit of the law, and making sure you're you're making your stakeholders aware aware of that. And appreciate this isn't specific to to your current company that you work for. This is just we're talking hypothetically and in general with your experience. I sort of think about those customers, there are suppliers, there are also, you know, payments, beneficiaries and and uh, remitters, et cetera. Would you treat those three groups differently or or essentially the same? I would treat them the same. I would ensure that, first of all, if we screen our customer database, that we actually have a comprehensive sanctions uh, data provider, right? So we don't screen her against the walls of the sanctions data. That would be priority number one. Priority number two would be that when we actually do payment screening or transaction screening, we actually do that against the same kind of sanctions data as we have on the customers. And the reason for that is we would have the same risk, although you have the customer and you could have a customer that would be a sanctioned customer, having an ordinary corporate customer, for example, that do a payment to a sanctioned entity, that would be, for me, that would be at least as bad, right? Uh, But what we see is that a lot of financial institutions within the industry, they, they may use comprehensive sanctions data on the customers, but to reduce false positives, they actually use raw source sanctions data on the payment screening. So they don't ha- have too many targets to screen against. And that's actually, that's actually a really big risk, right? Because then you would okay. actually treat your customers and your, uh, your customers payments differently. You mentioned the EU and it being slightly lower. Now, I think where the US says buy can buy ownership, 50% ownership or more. And it's quite sort of yes or no on that. The EU, and I think now the UK, now that it's out, out of the EU, talks about by control, which is a little bit uh, more nuanced, I guess. Could you, could you maybe you know, share your insight on, on that phrase, by control? I think one of the issues we have on control, right, because if you have good ownership data from the local registry or a, or a, or a company data provider on beneficial ownership data, if that's accurate, then of course, and you know you can trust that data, that's quite easy. But when it comes to control, there are other kind of data sets and data fields within, for example, a corporate company where you actually need to go and look. And there are very few local sources in Europe that provides that data on an, how do you say, on an easy way for you to take an, an informed decision if that person owns below or over 25%, for example, or if he controls that company, but he only owns 5 or 10%. Mm. So that's a big issue still today that I think a lot of financial institutions are still struggling because they are still struggling on actually getting the, the uh, beneficial ownership <laughs> registry correct, right? So when yeah. you say c- control, that's that's another issue that it's not fully solved. And I think a lot of financial institutions are still struggling, and especially in the fintech sector, because in the fintech sector, which I work in, we need to be automated, that it needs to be digitalized, and everything needs to be smooth. So we don't have so much time on the kind of manual handling of our mm. corporate customers. So when it's not in the data, the control information, if the person, the sanctioned object, is only owning 10%, which most likely that corporate customer would just go through any financial institution of fintech, right? In the onboarding or even the continuous screening of the customer. 
But if you, and if you don't have that data set or that data field that says that that person actually, yeah, he owns 10%, but he's actually the controlling part by voting, for example. And, and that's something that I think the vendors of corporate uh, ownership data, they need to really step it up because we as a financial institution or we, in Settle and other financial institutions, if we are going to succeed on this, we actually need the vendor's help because we cannot manage this without the data provided by the vendors. Okay, so you talked about you don't necessarily need to be owning a certain percentage to control a company. You talked about voting rights. What are the other sort of data points that in an ideal data set, in a perfect data set, you would have so you can look at control? What we use today, if I just go how we work today in Settle, for example, we of course use the the 24, 25% rule to, to identify the beneficial owner. But we also go and look on other owners who owns below uh, 25%. But mm. if we have a corporate customer where our corporate ownership information provider cannot provide without doubt a UBO, we actually register the share, chairman or the CEO or anyone that actually we see in the data has the control of the company can be a signatory, procurer, whatever kind of, yeah. So in some cases, we actually, if it's not possible to automate or digitalize, we actually need to do some kind of manual assessment to look at the kind of customer to, to assess that, okay, we, based on data we have available, which is the only data we have, we, we, we take an informed decision that that's the one that's controlling the company. The two-legged person, right? That's what we're looking for. Who's the two-legged person that is actually in control of the company? Andreas, so if I've understood correctly, the EU and the UK sanctions, anyone that is on that, anything that they control, whether that be by voting rights, certain level of ownership, or some other means, it could be their position in the company, to, to your point just there, you know, if they're the CEO or a director, those entities would also be considered sanctioned and need to be screened for by, by companies. Is that correct? Yes, uh, I would say that because this is a tactic that is in some way designed, right, to make it appear as the sanction target ownerships falls below a certain threshold. Uh, and sanction targets, they use different kind of strategies to make it appear like they no longer own or control a legal entity. And, and this is, of course, to prevent government agencies and from restricting their activities. How's this happening right now following the Russian invasion of Ukraine? How is that happening right now with the, the oligarchs, for instance, that are being sanctioned? My experience is that this has actually been happening for at least 10 years. This is something, it's a modus operandi that has been changed over time. And there are a lot of Russian, currently Russian sanctioned oligarchs and other politically exposed Russian uh, sanctioned individuals as well, who has had companies where they have had proxies, for example, or frontmen fronting their companies. But this is an obus operandi that has been going on for at least 10 years, at least 10 years. Okay. So there's different ways around sanctions then. We've got, if you're trying to uh, get around OFAC 50% rule, people will drop their percentage. If you are trying to get around EU and UK by control rules, then you're going to, a number of means, whether that be dropping ownership or different Right, it's different structures, different roles, uh, not sharing certain data. And then we've got uh, this idea of the 
using front men, as you said. So you need to understand those people's networks, which I think we're actually going to talk about quite in depth in our part three, which is going to be with Graham Barrow. He also had a similar line to you, Andreas. He, I know, I know he's a mutual friend, but you mentioned looking at different angles. He talked the other day about looking at data sideways being really important. So I think you guys are very much on the same page. What about? Can I just follow be, up on that? Yeah. That's yeah, really, really, really important, right? And and I actually said that to a group of people the other week that you need to turn things around. And if you think that just screenings against sanctions will will in some way solve everything, screening a sanction screening system and sanction screening a sanctions data is just a tool of, to help you, right? But you can actually do more. So you can be proactive. You can go to if you see a sanction object. Say, for example, registered in Cyprus. Okay. What address is that sanction object on? Which other companies is listed on that address? Who are the key individuals linked to those sanctioned entities? Are there frontmen like lawyers or are there different unique persons that, that are repeated in, in several companies? You need to look for those because what you can do, as we have done in Settle, we actually Utilize on more other data to identify sanctions with exposure, not only by using uh, the sanctions data. To give you one example, ICIJ, Offshore Leaks, Panama Papers, all those data sources are actually really, really important when you're screening against sanctions because they have the same kind of modus operandi. And some of those companies mm. are, in fact, actually linked to sanctioned entities and sanctioned individuals. Yeah, and I think that's again what when I saw some of your analyses that you were putting out on LinkedIn in, in a personal capacity, Andreas. That's what was really interesting, sort of how you built those graphs out. Um, and I think it's a great message that you can be proactive on this. You don't just have to tick the box and and think it's done. That there's always more you can do to be effective. I wanted to just briefly touch on. You mentioned comprehensive data earlier, but there is this term comprehensive sanctions as applied to sort of regions. So we've seen the regions of uh, Donetsk. And Luhansk, sort of separatist uh, regions at the moment in Ukraine, be put under comprehensive sanctions. Um, could you maybe explain that a little bit? And again, if you have a, a particular approach that that you think think is sort of the right one uh, to try and try and mitigate this? Yeah. So comprehensive sanctions aims to prevent all kind of transactions between a, a sanctioning country and the sanctioned country. And comprehensive sanctions generally allow for exemptions for humanitarian and medical purposes under a general license. Outside of these exemptions, there can be no imports, export provision of financing, exchange or distribution of technology, or any other financial or trade activity. So comprehensive sanctions will also include a full trade embargo and a, a kind of cease of diplomatic relations. And a lot of those sanctions programs within financial institutions, they focus mainly on financial sanctions and they not all think of the trade sanctions and trade activity related mm. sanctions. That's also important that, yeah, you have the customer screening against sanctions, you have the payment screening against sanctions, but you also need to have a trade activity screening, right? Against dual use goods, other kind of technology or services that can be under restrictions or under sanctions. And that's a really important thing, especially now with, with the comprehensive sanctions. Yeah, no, great point. I think it speaks to the fact this is not just a financial institution issue. This is all companies and yes. ultimately is how 
how the authorities are trying to put some pressure on Russia and the, and the separatist regions. So it is key. So Andreas, you mentioned in that the payment aspect, and I know you've got a wealth of experience in this area, particularly with with your current role. So can you maybe talk to Swift and SEPA and an automatic clearinghouse that you were telling me about last week and how that plays out in terms of sanctions risk in today's environment? Yeah. So, so for example, in, in SEPA, uh, we are a fintech. Uh, we can use SWIFT, we can use SEPA, but we use automated clearinghouse, which means that we can actually move a payment from A to B without bank A seeing the counterparty in the end, right? Which means that we as a fintech, which could be representative for other fintechs, would not use SWIFT, we would just use automated clearinghouse, fetch a payment, send a payment, the bank would be half blind, the bank wouldn't see if there were a counterparty that would be sanctioned, we would see that, but the bank would not see that. Okay. So the bank would need to rely on you to be a good actor and you know inform them that, hey, no, you don't want to send this payment because of, of sanctions risk. Is that right? Exactly. And that's really a good thing. To, to make a point, all right, you need fintechs that are good actors, but we also also have bad actors that popping up the last couple of 10 years when it comes to fintechs. And, and if you are a bad actor fintech and you do the same kind of setup, you can actually hide a lot of those payments. First of all, you don't use uh, Swift. Second, you, you make the banks half blind. Okay. So if, if you're an institution that is using the fintech, whether that be a banking partner or a corporate, for instance, that's using the fintech, make sure you've done your due diligence on those. Make sure you understand where you're blind or half blind, to use your phrase, and make sure you've got controls in place. And on that point, one important thing is that when a lot of those banks that had issues in, in, in the European Union, when it comes to the laundromats and all the money laundering scandals, Mm. Those payments went from those bigger banks to fintech, different fintechs. So one needs to understand the flow of money, where the money was, in the, what kind of banks, where they went, and where they are now. Really interesting. Maybe a nice way just to sort of, uh, as we start to come towards the end of this conversation, you've talked about sort of data and matching and payment, you know, and making sure you're not blind. Can you maybe just if you've got a sort of a three to five top tips for anyone that is looking to improve their sanctions program, particularly when it comes to understanding the ownership and control aspects? First of all, people need to understand when it comes to Russia sanctions, the Russian anti-transparency measures. So search on that, because that would mean that you need to stay extra, pay extra attention to Russian companies, because it may be that your vendor don't have that sanction risk data on a counterpart or, or, or a company, for example, because the ownership information is not disclosed in the Russian registry because of the Russian anti-transparency measures. That's one thing, right? You need to stay alert on that one. Then I would recommend actually to, if you're a large financial institution and you have a large exposure to different countries and different regions, I would recommend you to use two different vendors on data. But first of all, I would recommend you to invest in a really good sanction screening system. And that system needs to be so good. And the data that will be feed into that system also need to be really good. So you need to do a lot of benchmarks on different systems, as well as doing benchmark on the sanctioned data providers. You actually can feel and touch where you actually feel that you have the right kind of match, both in the screening system as well as the data provider. So 
definitely use the enrich data. And I think that came through fairly early at the start. Yes. Come back yes. around to it. You don't want to rely just on the lists, particularly when you're you're looking at these subsidiaries and, and different structures. So I know, Andreas, you also talked to the lawyers, the nominees, the front men, the addresses. Um, I'm going to leave that for today because on part three, we're going to explore that more where we talk about networks and how, yeah, and how to beat them. So with that, I'll just say thank you so much for your time and, and sharing your, your experience and insights today. And if anyone wants to get in touch, where should they reach out? Is LinkedIn the best place? or? Yeah, I think that's the best place. Yeah. And thank you okay. for inviting me. Thank you. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks so much.